This is J. Michael Edwards welcoming you back to the Majestic Academy's presentation of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Today, we are up to episode 9 in our study where we will learn about the church at Thyatira. Majestic Academy is a division of Majestic Business Solutions and was created to teach perfection in a world of mediocrity. Perfection is simply the successful completion of a worthwhile goal. So, let's join our teacher, Pastor Don Klein, as he again expounds on the Word of God in our study of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. This one. 
Thank you, J. Michael. We on the Academy are thankful you have chosen to join us in another presentation of the book of the Revelation. This book is one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible and one of the least likely to be read by God's people. This is why we here in the Academy have chosen to teach a verse-by-verse -verse study of this magnificent book. So let's get to our lesson on the church at Thyatira. I'm going to read uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And again, I, I just hope that you might be coming to these uh, sessions with your Bible. But uh, here we go. Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel which calleth herself a prophet, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto you every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many have, have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which she already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto that church is. Father, thank you for this portion of scripture. I pray that you'd help me now to uh, teach this lesson. I pray that we would have ears to hear. And Father, that we could learn something and we could make changes in our life according to what has happened here at the church of Thyatira. Help us to understand that these words are written to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So the city of Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities mentioned in the, uh, in the letters to the churches. It is also the city which is the least known. Yet to this little-known church in a little-known city that Christ addresses his longest letter. While not a lot is known about ancient Thyatira, some things are known and they are worthy of mention. Thyatira was probably founded by Alexander the Great some 300 years before Christ. The name Thyatira means unceasing sacrifice. It probably received this name because it was a military buffer city. It was located some 40 miles southeast of Pergamos, the capital of that province. When enemies invaded, they would naturally come to Thyatira first. 
While its location did not allow it to defend itself very well, its mission was to hold the enemy just long enough for Pergamus to prepare itself for battle. As a result, Thyatira was destroyed and rebuilt many times during its history. It was somewhat famous in its day for commerce. There was main trade route that went through that city. Thus, tradesmen from around the world bought and sold there. Thyatira was known for its woolen industry, especially for the dyes produced there. They manufactured a very expensive purple dye that was valued by royalty and the wealthy of that era. This dye was obtained from certain uh, shellfish. This little creature was brought up by divers. Its throat was slit open and a single drop of this dye was obtained. That dye, coupled with the chemical composition of the water of Thyatira, made colors possible there that could not be reproduced anywhere else on earth. This industry is mentioned in the Bible. We are told about a woman named Lydia, who is called a seller of the purple of the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was also known for its trade guilds. These were like the ancient unions of the day. Workers from the various industries of the city, like bakers and wool workers and dyers, uh, bronze workers, potters, and others, all banded together to set prices and guarantee work. To refuse to join a guild was to give up all prospects of work. This little fact will become important as we move through these verses. Thyatira was also a center of occult worship. There was a temple in the city dedicated to fortune-telling. It was presided over by a female oracle named Sambathe. It was to the church operating in this city that Jesus sends this letter. We don't know who founded this church. It is possible that the gospel was brought to Thyatira by Lydia, who was saved in Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 16, verses 12 through 15. Or as some think, it might have been evangelized by believers from Ephesus. There is one thing we know for sure. While the church in Thyatira might have been founded by a woman, it was certainly being confounded by a woman. There were serious problems in this church, and the Lord comes with a word tailored just for them and their needs. Jesus comes to this verse, I'm sorry, this church in verse 18 and presents himself in three ways. He comes as the saving one, the son of God. He reminds these people that he is a savior and that he alone is worthy of worship. He comes as a searching one. He has eyes likened to a flame of fire. He comes as the one who sees all. He sees the works of the hands and the motives and thoughts of the heart. He comes seeing all. He comes not as the meek and lowly Jesus, but with his eyes ablaze with anger over sin. And then he comes as the sovereign one. It says that he has feet like fine brass. Brass or bronze in the Bible is symbolic of judgment. Jesus not only comes as the one able to see all, he also comes as the one able to judge all. If there is one word that describes the situation we find at Thyatira, it is the word compromise. This is a church 
that has left its founding principles and has gone off into compromise and apostasy. Let's examine these verses and consider the church that compromised with the world. Remember, these letters can be viewed three ways. Practically, they are literal letters to real churches with real issues. Prophetically, they speak to the church in different periods of church history. The church of Thyatira speaks of the period between 600 AD to 1500 AD. The time is known as the Dark Ages. Many practices here are similar to Roman Catholicism. And then it comes personally. These letters have a message for every church and every believer who will hear and heed. A church just like every one of these seven churches can be found in the world today. Folks, there is a word here for us if we will receive it today. So the first thing is that he commends the church for their service. He commends their ministries. This was a very active church. They were working within their own number and within the community around them. Their ministry is noted by the words Jesus used. He says they are busy. Works. This means deeds. It speaks of them as being active in good deeds and benevolent outreach. They are burdened. Speaks of service. This word means ministry. It is the same word translated deacon throughout the New Testament. The word carries the idea of those who kick up dust. In other words, they were so busy that they kicked up a cloud of dust as they went from task to task. And he commends their motives. What was behind these works? What motivated them to do the things they were doing? They're motivated by their charity or love. This is the word agape. It refers to an unconditional, unceasing love that knows no boundaries and that is not influenced by the worth of the object being loved. It is God's kind of love. Now, let's face it. The only real motive for good works is love. Everything we do is to be done out of a heart of love or it is worthless. And the love that won't act is not genuine love at all. It is good that this church had love, but we are not told what they loved. Did their works arise out of genuine love for God, or did they simply love their fellow man? As the verses unfold, I think we will see that their love was centered on man and not on God. Godly works always arises out of a heart aflame with love for God Almighty. This was Paul's motive in 2 Corinthians 5.14, which says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. This must be our motive too. They are motivated by their consecration. This is faith. This word refers to faithfulness. These were folks that could be counted on to get the job done. They were faithful, but not fickle. Too many times there was work to be done around the church, and no one wants to do that work. That was a problem in Thyatira. There was work to do, and plenty of people willing to do the work, and that's a good situation. He commends their maturity, works, and the last to be more than the first. 
When I say maturity, I'm not talking about spiritual growth. I'm talking about growth in the level of their works. They were developing and progressing on their works. Their outreach and ministry to the fellow man was ever on the increase. And so he commends the service of this church, but then he confronts the sin in the church. While this church appeared to be everything a church ought to be on the surface, at its heart they were a festering sore. The church at Thyatira looked good on the outside, but it was corrupt at its core. Jesus comes to confront their sin. In verses 20-23, he confronts the teacher of this church. The church in Thyatira was being led away from the Lord by the teachings of an influential woman in their congregation. Jesus exposes her, her teachings, and her judgment in these verses. The, this, this woman is called Jezebel. She is called by the name of one of the most infamous women in the entire Bible. In verse 20, her sin is described. This self-appointed prophetess, whoever she was, was guilty of leading the people away from the true worship of God. No one is quite sure what the actual going on was, but we have a teacher like this Jezebel in modern churches today. Everywhere people who call themselves Christians claim that they can have a relationship with the Lord on the one hand and live lives of open, open sin on the other. Homosexuals and pornographers and drug users and druggers and those adherent to false religions and so much more. They all claim to be saved, but they still are able to do as they please. This ought not to be so. So somebody is a liar. The Lord told his people to separate from that kind of lifestyle in 2 Corinthians 6.17. He told us that his people received a new birth in John 3.3 3, and that they became new creatures in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The Bible tells us that anyone who lives a lifestyle of committed, continual, unrepentant sin is lost. We have liberty as Christians, but our liberty is not a license to sin. Someone who can live in sin and not be convicted by it is not saved. You cannot do that. When you are living in sin, you will be convicted by the Holy Spirit. No, you can't lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. But someone who lives in, in this kind of sin and is unrepentant and is comfortable in that sin was never saved in the first place. We see her stubbornness is denounced. The Lord had given this woman and her followers time to, to turn from their sins, but they refused to do so. Now his patience has run out and she is slated for judgment. I want you to note that our God is a patient, loving God. He gives lost sinners and wayward believers the opportunity on top of opportunity to get right with him. When they refuse, they can expect nothing less than his judgment. In Proverbs 29.1, it says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. In verses 22 and 23, it says, Her sentence is declared. Because of what she had done, she and all her followers will face God's wrath. 
By using the phrase, cast her into great tribulation, he is telling us that these people are not saved. But notice the grace in his judgment. He is still giving them space to repent. If they refuse, they will be judged according to your works. Salvation is always based on God's grace. Judgment comes based on man's works. Let's not deceive ourselves. People who will not bow to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him for salvation and demonstrate that salvation through a changed, dedicated life are people who have never been saved. They abide under the wrath of God and will be judged by Him according to their works. We're going to see that as we get to Revelation 20. If you have never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, let me challenge you to come to Jesus while there is still time. One day the patience of God will reach an end and nothing will remain but death, judgment, and hell. Did you notice the reference to her children in verse 23? The young people are the ones who suffer the most when there is compromise and hypocrisy in the church. They see the inconsistency and they turn their backs on God and stumble off blindly towards hell. Then in verse 20, he confronts the tolerance of this church. Jesus expresses displeasure with this church because they allowed this woman to be in a position of leadership and because they tolerated the lies she was teaching for the truth. The word sufferest means to tolerate, to permit, and to allow. God is displeased that they would allow things of that nature to go on in his church. There were probably, like many in our day, they might have said, well, you know, I don't agree with that, but we shouldn't say anything because we might hurt their feelings. Some folks need their feelings hurt. When false doctrine is being preached in the church, those who know the truth have the duty to stand up and do something about it. When we sit back and allow that kind of wickedness to go unchecked, we invite the anger and judgment of God. Some people look at the church and they disprove of the standards that we uphold. They don't understand why our women dress uh, wear, wear dresses to church. They don't understand why we refuse to allow certain kinds of music in. They don't understand our stand on the King James Bible. They don't understand why we won't line up with them and participate in the things they are doing. You know, these uh, Walk for Jesus days and, uh, and Baseball for Jesus and they want everybody to come out. No, we won't participate in those things they are doing. But let me tell you this. We have standards and we stand by them for a simple reason. That reason is this. If you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. It's the camel's nose under the tent syndrome. Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. Don't give in at all. That's called compromise. A little contemporary music today will turn into services that resemble rock concerts. One new version today will turn into a confusion of verses tomorrow. If we let down the wall just a little and compromise with the world, the world will not stop until it has everything we value. And we will be left with nothing but the anger of a holy God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be misunderstood 
I'd rather be called old-fashioned, I'd rather be ridiculed, than if I had to forfeit the power and presence of an almighty God. Some churches pride themselves on their tolerance. I think God still expects his people to be different from the world around them. When we do like Thyatira and compromise our standards to appeal to the world, we are turning our backs on the truth. When we open the door and let the world come in, do not be surprised if the Lord walks out. Then in verse 23, he confronts the testimony of this church. The Lord tells this church that he would use them as an example to teach other churches what happens when the truth is compromised. The church in Thyatira had been established to bring the word of God to a pagan city. They had functioned well for a while, then they had abandoned the right path. They're going to pay a heavy price for their sin. The Lord will not tolerate sin in the church when it is allowed to flourish. 1 Peter 4.17 reminds us that judgment must begin at the house of God. In other words, when there is sin in the camp, the Lord will deal with it. He will reprove his presence, his power, and his touch off of the wayward congregation. He will write Ichabod, in other words, the glory of the Lord has left this place, over the door and watch us dwindle away to nothing. That will be the price for compromise. And so he commends the service of the church, then he confronts the sin in the church, and then he comforts the saints in the church. Not everyone in Thyatira had walked away from the Lord. Even in that tolerant, compromising, sinful church, there was a faithful remnant. The Lord has a few words of hope and comfort for them as they struggled to walk holy in an unholy congregation. In verses 24 and 25, he comforts them concerning their duty. He tells them that all he expects from them is that they stay the course. He wants them to avoid being sucked into the vortex of evil, that is swirling there in Thyatira. In verses 26 and 27, he comforts them concerning their destiny. The Lord Jesus promises them that if they will remain faithful to him, they will rule with him when he comes into his kingdom. He seems to be saying, you folks are powerless to change your situation now, but the day is coming when I will put my power into your hands. You will reign with me and your struggle for holiness will be worth it all in the end. If you are going to be a holy, godly Christian in these days, you might as well get ready to be hated, misunderstood, and persecuted. But this is not the end of the matter. One day, my friends, the king is coming. When he does, he is going to let his faithful servants reign with him. We might be weak today. The worldly, compromising churches might be the ones with all the people and all the power and all the prestige. But... When the king comes, those who have served him faithfully now will reign with him then. It will be worth it all when that day comes. Verse 28 says he comforts them concerning their deliverance. Jesus promises these faithful believers the morning star. There is much debate among biblical scholars as to what he is talking about here. Some believe that he is promising them himself. After all, he is the bright and morning star, Revelation 22:16. Some think this refers to Satan in Luke 10:18, that Jesus will let the church see Satan get what's coming to him someday. We're going to see that in Revelation 20, verse 10. What a time that'll be, amen. 
I think he's talking about the rapture. You see, when the night grows the darkest, the morning star or the planet Venus becomes visible. When that heavenly body appears, you know that daybreak is not far behind. I think the Lord is telling these folks to just hold on for a little while longer. He seems to be saying, it might be dark now, but there's a glimmer of hope in the heavens. Hang on, I'm coming to get you. What a day that's going to be. <laughs> folks, that is his promise to us as well. This dark night we are in right now will not last forever. And man, what, what a dark night we are in right now. But have faith, my friends. The Lord is coming. Can I get a few amens out there? The signs are visible all around us. Symbolically, the morning star has appeared and it signals the approach of a new day. He is coming and we are going. So just, just hang on for a little while longer. Now, these letters are addressed to seven churches. But they have so much truths for us. I hope you and your church are not like this church. Satan would love nothing but than to slither his way into your fellowship and cause you to abandon the Lord's truth. We must be vigilant. We know 1 Peter 5, 8, it says that we have an adversary, the devil, and he walks about out of a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know what? That lion does not ever give up. He is, he is relentless. Un, he is relentless. And we have got to be wary of him. Not weary, but wary. We get weary too, don't we? But we must be wary of his tactics. We must watch and work against those tactics at every turn. We must look not only at the church as a whole, but at our own individual hearts as well. Is it not true that sin comes not in great numbers, but when we as individual believers allow Satan a stronghold in our lives? So let me ask you this, has the Lord touched your heart through this message? Has he shown you some things in your life? Is there compromise? Have you allowed others to influence you? Are you going to one of those churches with the rock and roll bands up on the platform? And they're using these so-called Bibles uh, that are just nothing but paraphrase books. They're works of fiction. If so, you need to find a good fundamental church. And I must specify a independent fundamental Baptist church. But if he has called you to come before him to deal with your sins, won't you come? Won't you come to the Lord? Jesus, as I mentioned in our last lesson, he stands at the door and he's knocking. And he wants to come in with you and suck with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to have a close, close relationship with you. If he impresses you to pray, then you pray. Pray for the churches out there uh, that are holding out against the rising tide of compromise. And pray for those that have given in. Won't you obey, obey his voice as he speaks to your heart? 
you may not be totally saved because one can't be partially saved. You must be all in or you're not in at all. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All means all. We're all sinners. All have sinned because of one man. Sin falls on all mankind. But by one man, we're all redeemed. We've all sinned, but Romans 5.8 says, For God commendeth his love towards us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I praise God that Christ died for me. He died for you too. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, it's a free gift, my friend. You don't have to work for it. It's a free gift. Revelation 10, 9 and 10 says, that thou, if, it's, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in that heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. You've got you've to confess. And that doesn't mean confess like going to confessional. That means agreeing with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. Jesus is God himself. And then you've got to believe that God raised him from the dead. And that says, Thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, the road to salvation is a narrow road. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can't get to heaven by your religion. You can't get to heaven by your baptism. You can't get to heaven by your church membership. You can't get to heaven by being a good person. Those, those, those things will not get you to heaven, only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, can you get to heaven? And so won't you ask him in your heart? Won't you just bow your head and pray, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness and take me to heaven when I die. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. Would you save me right now? Would you become the Lord of my life? And be sincere about that. You must be sincere. And so I look forward to the next lesson as we take a look at another church from Revelation chapter 3. Until then, keep looking up and listening for the shout. J. Michael back with you. Another great lesson. We certainly hope you are enjoying this series and are telling your friends about it. Next time, we will look at a church that is dead, but they didn't know it. The church at Sardis. Until then, keep looking up and listening for the shout.